Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to Honey Co. The Food Sessions. I'm Sarit Packer. And I'm Itamar Srulovich. We're very excited because we're being joined today by one of our favorite people and a good friend, Trina Hanneman. Trina is a huge personality in Danish food culture. She's an inspiration to us personally and a great source of knowledge. She owns a beautiful place in Copenhagen called Hanneman Kokken or Hanneman's Kitchen. And we've been lucky enough to do a few events there and luckier still to have tasted her beautiful breads and baked goods. This is a great opportunity for all of us to really understand Danish cooking because we all know about cinnamon rolls and rye bread, but we're sometimes a bit hazy on the rest of it. So I hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as we do. What would you classify as Danish food? First of all, I think freshness, simplicity and um, seasonality. I think what really is the core of it is that we don't use a lot of spices at the same time. We do use spices. We kind of use them one at a time. So yeah. the, the produce really speaks for itself in many ways. And then we have a lot of seasons. We don't have three seasons. Sometimes we have 10, sometimes we have 12, you could say, because some is no more than four to six weeks. The light in the summer and the darkness in the winter, and that also really defines the way we eat. You feel the need for different things depending on summer and winter. Yeah. And you're like a huge presence in Copenhagen and in Danish food, but you've published in America and obviously here in the UK. How did you get into this world of food? <laughs> uh, I needed money. It's <laughs> <No. laughs> the wrong profession to be in if that's what you needed. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yes, that's really terrible. But um, no, I always loved cooking and I always uh, cooked a lot in weird little small cafes when I was really young. And I worked in a bakery when I was, you know, selling bread when I was 16. And I worked in an ice cream shop. I worked in New York as a waiter. I've always been part of this food business, but I, I wanted to study and I wanted an academic career and I was not going to be part of the food business, but I, I, it seems like I never really got out and I don't regret it at all. But at some point while I was studying, I ran out of money and we had two small children and we couldn't make ends meet. And we were like, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to go back to cooking for a year and then save up so I can write my dissertation. And I didn't How go back. How many years ago was this? <laughs> that was in 94. So yeah. that's almost 30 years, so 28 years, 27 maybe, yeah. And then very quickly mm. afterwards, that I worked for a friend of mine and in a catering company, and our speciality was to cook for TV production and go on tour with rock bands and rock stars. And she was not very good at business, and 
I had a flair for it. And her husband said, I'm so tired of all the money I'm losing. Can I sell this company to you for one kroner? So I bought it for one kroner and then that's it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I did that for two years, but I had two small kids at home and mom was touring with some big rock bands. Really? I mean, that didn't fit my life at all. So we decided, uh, Nils Peter, my husband and I, that it was probably best if I did something during the week, like lunch and uh, <laughs> bread and stuff that would make me be at home at night and weekends uh, with my children because I really missed them. And then it grew quite a lot more than that. Like, yeah. yeah. In a few years, I was running uh, 10 canteens and serving between 3,000 and 4,000 people a day. You became the lunch queen of Copenhagen. And that company I sold in 2019. So I now I have my big place in Copenhagen, 1,000 square meters with a cooking school, a bakery, wow. an eatery and a deli and, you know, big outdoor space where you've been cooking. Yeah, it's a beautiful and place. The, yeah, it's really nice and it's very local. We have lots of customers who come every day for their coffee and buns and things like that. And it's also 100% organic, so I work really with farm to table in this project. And that's one of the really things that I wanted to try and see what the Danish soil could kind of offer me. I remember when we came, this was a big part for us to be able to cook our food. We had to discuss yeah. what is actually growing yeah. and what we can get and how can we get organic produce that would suit our food and our sensibilities. But I mean, we ended up producing a wonderful meal, but... Yeah. Tell us a bit more about this relationship with the farms, with the organic. I mean, you get flour that's fantastic flour. Like I bought a 16 kilo bag of flour back to London, which is mad. But it was yeah. not 16. Sorry, it was a five kilo. I'm like a five kilo bag. I, I thought about yeah. the 16, but that yeah, was a okay. yeah. We had some really good babkas that week. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yes. I work with uh, a farmer who's also a miller, who has a mill 40 kilometers from 50 kilometers probably. He grows a lot of amazing different kinds of wheat and a bit of rye, something called purpurville, which is like a, it's a purple kind of. Okay. And it, What is it, like a grain? Yeah, it's a grain called purpurville or wheat. And um, it, it, when we use it, it gives the bread a bit of a purple. Um, oh, cute. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And we also bake croissants on it, which is really, really difficult because, you know, the flour is not that stable. But as a craft, it's amazing because you work with nature. And then when it comes to vegetables, we get a, a list from our farmer, Kirsten, who has a farm, also 40 minutes drive from us. And then I see what she has that week. And then we make a menu around that. Yeah. And then... This is open sandwiches and salads and sandwiches and whatever we have that has that goes to events and party. And if it's a cooking, all the cooking classes, we buy almost everything from her. We make a big table and then we create menus and teach people how to cook what season. But of course, root vegetables is coming now. So that means we can bring back the open sandwiches with celeriac. And that celeriac is fresh right now. And then it will be fresh until November. But then they dig it all up. Last year, we could get celeriac. Uh, all the way into, you could say, May. So it also depends on how the weather was that summer and then we plan accordingly. What I love about your cooking is that there's always something very clean, fresh and very vegetable-centric. And this is the last book as well, your latest book. Which is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. But a, lo a lot of people don't necessarily associate Danish cuisine with vegetables and fruit. Especially when you try to be completely organic and use local ingredients. How do you kind of navigate the vegetable landscape in, in Denmark? 
I grew up with a lot of vegetables, but the variety of local vegetables you can get today has never been better. All locals are more or less organic. I think the seasonality was really big in my upbringing because my grandmother, she would, you know, I just knew that now it's August and we are going to have mackerel and gooseberries and, and cauliflower. And if you asked me as a child, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it was seasoned. It yeah. was just something I look forward to. And I just want to say, I always loved food. I was never picky. <laughs> I just, whatever somebody would serve to me, I was interested and I just, every meal count. I was looking forward to every meal. And I still do. We have really great terroir or soil in Denmark to grow a lot of different vegetables like cabbage and root vegetables, potatoes. And the reason why berries are so good in Scandinavia and the Nordic country is because we have very long days with a lot of sun, but not very strong sunshine. So instead of the berries getting a lot of heath all the time, they grow slowly, not too big, but very tasty. But when it comes to thinking about meat and fish and the poultry we can get, I, I don't know, maybe it's nine, ten different things we can get. We don't even yeah. know all the vegetables that is in this world. So this is yeah. also a journey that yeah. will never end. You know, I know how many chickens I can get and hen and ge whatever. Just the last five years, all the new cabbages. Two years ago, Kirsten, the farmer I work with, she came, there was a new cabbage called Calette or a flower sprout. I mean, I love it. I just think vegetables have so many more flavors. And if they're fresh, like I get them, they don't need, I mean, you remember the corn oh, you were, was you were, uh, was it chili yeah. sauce you put mm -hmm. on it? Oh, yeah. I always say to my guests and to the people that I work with that we bring nature into the city. It yeah. tastes amazing. But herb is quite big as well, but not all herbs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have parsley and dill. <laughs> I remember trying Very to get important. coriander. That wasn't yeah. as easy as parsley and dill yeah. for sure. <laughs> no, no. And coriander we have right now and coriander yeah. flower. But parsley and dill chives are the main herbs. But we also really like yeah. lovage. We use that a lot uh, in the beginning of the summer. We really like chiril yeah. and then tarragon. They're mostly used one by one. In my cookbook, the latest Scandinavian Green, I use a lot of mixing herbs. And then I personally love coriander. But in Denmark, that is like, like garlic used that's, to be in the 70s. That's always the controversial you know? one. I was like, Whoa, controversial. I don't eat coriander. I'm like, okay. But you, you, you like yeah. curry, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> it's like, okay. So, yeah. So, yes, fresh herbs are, is a really, really big thing. But also pickling is quite yeah. a big thing, isn't it? Like, tell us a bit about the traditions of pickling. And I'm assuming that's a way of preserving the season as well as, as adding a sharpness. Yeah. So what's it all about? In Denmark, there's a special love of sweet and sour. We do a vinegar, it's very sweet with vinegar brine, and the spices that goes into it traditionally is mustard seeds, black pepper, and the mm. crown of the dill when it starts mm. flowering, where the seed's still sitting in there. So you cut that top off and put it into the jar. Cucumber, different kinds of cucumbers, and then we do, of course, beets, uh, celeriac, a special cucumber called Asia. It does grow here in, in, in UK, but I've never seen pickled Asia anywhere other than Denmark. And these are, so you take the peel off and the seeds out and then you salt them for an hour and then you kind of pickle them raw, just pouring the, the warm, sweet and sour vinegar. We don't really do only sour. That's a new thing. And it is about preserving and it's eaten with 
all the different kinds of smurb where they all kind of go with something pickled, in, especially when we talk about meat. But we also have a tradition with pickling berries like the red currants. Uh, you take them and put them with sugar. You keep them for three days and you just, you know, shake them. You know, I'm moving my hands, but yeah, like you shake them. Um, after three days, the sugar will have dissolved from all the acidity in the berries. And then you can keep it for like three weeks or something. And that we eat for breakfast. Then we eat it on open sandwiches. And then we will eat it with fried fish, with chicken. This is something that can, you know, be come into every meal. Yeah. But this, this for yeah. me is a very... Uh, and also the cucumbers that you're talking about before just make me like yeah. remember this like yeah. we bought a couple of jars and we were like yeah we'll give them as gifts then yeah. we opened one and I don't think any of them ended up going to <laughs> yeah. anyone else apart from ourselves yeah. 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 <laughs> but now I think when you say Copenhagen a lot of people conjure up this very very foody town Yeah. was it always like this or was it no is, is this a new thing or yes because like, you, you're you know This is your hometown. You grew up yeah. there. So. I grew up in the city center. It was really boring when I grew up. I never went to restaurants. I think I was 16 years old before I went to a restaurant the first time in my life. And it was a Greek restaurant. It started in the, in the 80s a little bit with, you know, Michelin star kind of restaurants and things like that. You could go to a Turkish restaurant and eat everything for 10 pounds, you know, that kind or a Michelin star. And there was not a nice good meal for an affordable price. I'm not talking about it should be cheap, but you know, it's either or either you save up to this very fancy meal or you go to... Um, like a birthday meal, what yeah. we call. And we had the open sandwiches places where you go for lunch. And then in the 90s, a lot of chefs started to do different things and it was growing and they were inspired by other cities and there were a particular group of, of people who also were Rene Redzepi, who was one of our very famous chefs. He also were part of the, the young guys who was trained by the group of these chefs who were also starting to change the city. But it all happened more or less with Noma and that effect of the Nordic Manifesto of all of that, because we did not understand how valuable our own cuisine was as a people before somebody from the outside told us. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the food is delicious and it's very unique still, which is quite yeah. interesting because in most of the world, I think you go and you eat kind of sometimes you can have a meal in New York or in London. And if you just landed there, you maybe wouldn't specifically know which city you're in. But I think uh, in Copenhagen, definitely there is a thread, but it also struck me as quite a masculine kind of Mm -hmm. profession I think there like it's still <laughs> yeah. very much like you know for me as a woman yeah. it's always like quite an important part of it but how do you feel like being a woman and being kind of so involved in the food industry there do you think it is kind of mostly male dominated still is it, it changing? It is 100% male dominated it's a boys club and yeah. it's not easy for women to be part of it but it's not impossible and it's not like a lot of them welcome it It's just that this culture has been there for so long, so a lot of people are not as conscious about it as they ought to be. But right now, we have some amazing talent, young female chefs who are, I mean, intelligent, lovely, cook the most amazing things and run their kitchen in a different way. And I think they're going to be big voices in, in the scene in Copenhagen uh, in the years to come. Yeah. And I actually work with one of the big cooking schools in Copenhagen to try to convince more young women to enter this business. Because right now, when you look at their apprenticeships, only 28% who joins right now are women. And that's it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I was just curious about people coming into the industry and coming into restaurant. Do you find that it's kind of more prestigious and more people are interested in coming into kitchens or... Are you struggling from the same kind of staff shortages that the UK is and everything? We are in real trouble, to be honest. First of all, we have the staff shortages right now, which is very critical. But we do not have enough young people who want to join our industry and become chefs. And it's especially that, because it's not that difficult to find young people who want to work in a restaurant for two or three years before they do something else. Yeah. Yeah. But I can tell you, to find a good baker to find a good pastry chef, to find a good line cook or head chef, I find close to impossible right now. Mm. Um, and we're really looking at our government and saying, what are you going to do? How are you going to help us here? Because first of all, we've been through this crisis and now we have a new one because too many people have left. Yeah. If we don't really celebrate the greatest thing about being in a kitchen and cooking for other people and you know, seeing the produce coming in, the beauty of it, we also lose the opportunity to get young people hooked into this because it is that. It's yeah. very passionate to do what we do. But I'm I'm worried about it. I mean, in the, in the Danish education program, it's a lot about, there's so much talk about university and not, and not all people are cut out for that. Lots of people are cut out to use their hands and not sit still all day and have the sensibility of the craftsmanship. You know, what is that? That intuitive thing of working and then we need to have good working conditions we need to make sure that you can have a career even though you don't become a head chef that you can have a proper pay what does that mean you know the customers probably have to pay more if we don't solve that 
it can be difficult to evolve and and run restaurants in the future. And I I sit at the advisory board at the Basque Culinary Center in Spain, and and we have meetings uh, where chefs who owns restaurants around the world, we're talking Japan, Mexico, America, all of them are saying the same. This is global. Yeah. Yeah. You're quite big on campaigning in general. You're not. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, apart one from this, not, not shy of a campaign. <laughs> no, yeah, you're not shy of a campaign. I mean, like start one because honestly, we're there with you. <laughs> yes. Uh, but <laughs> tell us about other things that you champion because you you you've worked with refugees. Like like you you're big in like looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, I worked with refugees on and off for the last twenty years in Denmark. Red Cross they do this campaign every year when they ask. 10 people in either in culture or business to help them raise money. I traveled around all the asylum centers in Denmark and met the women who lived there. And I had the same question for all of them, like, what did the kitchen look like? Who taught you to cook? You know, what was your daily life around food? And then we started a, a group of, of women who toured Denmark and cooked for big companies to show people the skills of these new citizens who were going to come live with us. And the food was amazing. We had food from <laughs> so many countries and, I, oh God, it was so good. And actually, we ended up cooking for the Danish queen, which was a big thing for the group. I mean, that was just, that was uh, icing on the cake, like you can say. And there were women from Russia, from Ukraine, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, Iran, and from South America. I mean, it was unbelievable. Most of them didn't speak Danish or English or anything. But we could still create this way of communicating through the food. We could create all these menus. I learned a lot from them. And then when the big crisis with the Syrian refugees started with a photographer and a writer, we wrote a book about Syrian culture and Syrian food. And it sold thousands of copies. And we um, collected a lot of money that went to some refugees organizations. Do you see influences of the food in restaurants? Has that started to seep in more? The fact that you do accept refugees and that you try and kind of incorporate them into everyday life. Do you see more like Syrian restaurants or? I always say we have a very strong food culture. When people say there was no food culture before the Nordic movement, I, I disagree. There's a really strong food culture, but they were never a strong restaurant culture. And that is new. But if we should think about the immigrants and the refugees who came to Denmark, when I grew up in the 60s, I was teased in school because I ate garlic at home, so I smelled like garlic. I was teased because I had hummus in my lunchbox. And now you can't go to any corner shop or any supermarket in Denmark without being able to buy hummus. So, I mean, these things do move. They change. And you could say the same with some of the breads and a lot of other things that just slowly goes into the everyday way of living and then it becomes part of it. But I would say there's some interesting restaurants with food from other countries that has an interesting profile and it's happening, but it's slower. The Nordic has been very dominating, but I think it's changing now because I think we had also a limit to how many Nordic, new Nordic restaurants there can be in one city. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, within the, the Nordic tradition, if we're talking about that, I want to talk about the tradition that I don't know how to pronounce properly, but I'm going to make my attempt at uh, Hugge. Yeah, that's a good one. Hugge. Yeah, yeah. Hygge. And first of all, for me, this is the best tradition ever <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it celebrates everything that I absolutely love. But you tell us about it. Hygge, it's very much about focusing on having a nice time without it being pretentious. 
you could say you can go to a restaurant and have it hyggeligt. But hygge is very much a home thing. And because Scandinavian culture and Danish culture is so much about being at home, that's always been like that because of economic reasons and because of the weather and the coldness and all of that. So a lot of people think it's about the hot chocolate and staying in and having a nice cake and a stew and la la la. And that is also that. And Christmas, of course, is hygge, hygge, hygge. But hygge is also <laughs> summer, you know, <laughs> sitting and having a nice time with some summer food and a glass of wine and enjoying the light evening with your best friends or just people you know. <laughs> I think actually that's one of the really big things that René Redzepi did with Noma was it was hyglit. This is a restaurant that is up there with the best in the world and you go in and there's no tablecloth. It's all wooden. You feel like you're in a in a cabin somewhere and it has deer skin and, and, and the whole atmosphere of the way the waiters talk to you, the way... It was hyglit. You felt hygge when you were there. There's also one thing about Danes. They don't really like waiters to be... We want them to... We are the same. It's a very egalitarian country. So we don't really like if it's too, you know... We feel uncomfortable. So that's also what hygge does. It brings that sense of togetherness in, in a lot of different situations. This is something that I, I, when I got the book, I promised myself that I'm going to do. I haven't done it yet, but I want to talk about it. And this is the fermented potato chips. Because <laughs> I, I was driving you crazy ever I since I saw it. <laughs> fermented uh, potato yeah. chips, discuss. Yeah. Tell the uh, listeners what it is and why is this. I know that it's so delicious. Discuss, talk, you talk. I take potatoes and cut the skin off on all five. Six sides. Uh, four eight six sides yeah. <laughs> and then i cut them into long rectangles like like you would do with crisps uh french fries and then i separate them and then i put them in a brine where with five to ten percent salt and then i ferment them for three days just outside not in, in the fridge or in a jar okay. no in a jar in a jar outside and you don't put the lid on so it doesn't explode it needs to be able to yeah. the gas goes out And after three days, I take them out and the one without the skin, I double fry them in oil. And the other ones, the potato skins, because you have all the sides, I take them as well and dry them, pat dry them kind of with a tea towel or something. And then I put them with a little bit of olive oil and then into the oven. So you get the crisp and the potato skins and then some really nice mushroom kind of emulsion or mayo or tarragon. Delicious. Serve some really lovely salads with that. Yeah. And that's a meal. You don't need the steak or anything for this. This is so flavorful because it has the fermentation as well. There's a lot of umami, which is the flavor we always miss. We don't have meat. So this is also a way to put some flavors into the winter vegetables and the winter potatoes that we need to eat. We need to eat potatoes in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. That's what grows that here. So That's delicious. Any type of potato, do you think? Yeah, they need to be a little old. <laughs> a little and, old. And a bit, <laughs> it has to be a bit of, yeah, because if they're too fresh, they don't okay. get crisp, you know? It's, it's about the starch. Interesting mm -hmm. and extremely, extremely <laughs> hungry making. Sorry, I just needed to, uh, you know, that I needed to discuss this. No, no, I understand. And I and <laughs> yeah, I now remember that he was going on about it for weeks. And at the time I wasn't eating carbs. So yeah, I said to him, we can't mm -hmm. try it. We'll try it at some stage. Now uh -huh. I'm eating carbs again. Let's try it. Trina, tell us a little bit about your grandmother's cooking. Was it very traditional Scandi or was, tell us a little bit about it. First of all, it was full of love, but it was very, very traditional Danish cooking. 
um, and it followed kind of a, a weekly scheme. We had fish on Wednesday and if we had chicken, it would always be Saturday night and there would be a big fat chicken and there would be enough for leftovers the next day. She would cook very seasonal, boiled potatoes, a cabbage, the spring cabbage in a white sauce, a lot of meatballs, always home-baked cakes, always Danish butter cookies. If, I mean, if somebody come for coffee and you don't have anything to offer them, it would be a scandal. <laughs> but also my, you know, fat, yeah. pork fat. You know, if I was really hungry in between the meals, you never asked for anything in between the meals. That was very rude. But if it happened, my grandfather, he would give me a piece of rye bread with some pork fat on it and eat that because then It'd you wouldn't you fill, yeah. you fill you up until the next meal. I mean, I write a lot about my grandmother that we call Momo in Danish in my books because I did not know until much later what a gift she gave me. I was just around her. I was just told, today we're picking berries and then we're boiling jam. But all the smells, I saw what she did. I was interested. She gave it to me as the biggest gift ever to know how to run a kitchen. First of all, what's a household? How do you cook for your family during a week and, and using everything? Beautiful. And was this, would you say, for your generation, would you think that this was typical for you know people to be so connected to their domestic traditions? Both yes and no. There is this really traditional yellow pea soup that's um, made with pork stock and, and you know it's it's really heavy you eat it with sausages and boiled pork mustards and pickled beetroots or the you know sweet and sour and it takes two or three days to make and at some point around 1970 there was a big supermarket opening up very close to my grandmother and they started selling it pre-made in bags <laughs> like this two kilos and my grandmother yeah. never cooked it After that, she went down and bought the two bags, and I did not like that version. I have the res my grandmother's recipe that my mother and I found, and we did it once together, and we just loved it again. And all the memories from when I was little and my, my mother's childhood came when we cooked this again. Very delicious, but mm. only when it's why, why does it take two days to make? Because, Because first you have to boil the bones, and then you have to soak the split peas, and then you have to boil that for hours, and you have to boil the pork belly. It sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. But it is really good, yeah. It, is, it does sound like something we would eat. Mm. And you eat it with rye bread. Very important as well. Rye bread and all the cold yeah. cuts You should eat everything stuff. with yeah. rye bread. I, yes. And healthy. We could talk for you, with you for hours. We will, because we're going to go out to dinner and we're going to continue talking to you. Yeah. But the people <laughs> yes, listening, we we're going to have to say yeah. goodbye to them. And we want to thank you so much for joining us for this recorded conversation and uh, for inspiring us and for showing us a food that is so honest and beautiful and clean that it makes us kind of rethink a few things of how we do, which is always an important, important thing to learn and to see. Thank you. Yeah. See you in Copenhagen. <laughs> Next year. That is it for this episode of Honey and Co. The Food Sessions. Do join us for the rest of the autumn series. We'll be talking to chefs and writers from all over the world and from across food traditions to New York's Jake Cohen, Seattle's Renee Erickson, and to London's Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley. Chetna Makan will bring us a taste of Mumbai via Kent, Caroline Eden journeys to Central Asia, and we'll end on something sweet, as always, with pastry chef extraordinaire Ravnit Gill. Thank you to our producer Miranda Hinckley. 
to our engineers, Paul Brogdon and John Scott, to Daniel Winshaw for writing the music, and thanks to Louisa Cornford, our Lulu, uh, for all the help she puts into the podcast, and to all our team at Honey & Co. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.